From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking is Dr. Brian Schwartz, professor and turfgrass breeder at the University of Georgia, based at the legendary Tifton Experiment Station in Tifton, Georgia. Dr. Schwartz admits he's not a native Texan, born in Chicago, but moved to Texas at eight months old. Trained at Texas A&M, where he did not interact with turfgrass breeders, like such as Dr. Milt Ingelke, in hopes of being a corn and cotton breeder, only to join Dr. Kevin Kenworthy's turfgrass breeding program at the University of Florida. Brian has received numerous awards for the release of Tiff Tough Bermuda Grass, and as you will hear, is very excited about the future of this grass, as well as his new zoysia grass varieties. Brian and I were able to talk about the many talented superintendents who manage the fine grasses he has developed over the years. And certainly, managing a spray application program is among the most critical skills these superintendents have. Spray technology is changing so rapidly, so having a partner such as Frost Spray Technology that specializes in application technology is a key. The expertise at Frost Spray Technologies from setting up a new GPS sprayer, considering drone applications, or the nuts and bolts of nozzles, pumps, and controllers. Frost Spray Technologies is your reliable source. Learn more about all that Frost offers at frostserve.com. That's frostserv.com. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Dr. Brian Schwartz, professor at the University of Georgia, filling some of the biggest shoes I think exists in the turfgrass breeding world, although you've been there so long, Brian, I'm sure you filled them out rather than shrunk them down. That had to be quite intimidating to come out of grad school in Florida into the Tifton Station with the history there. Can you talk for a minute about working with, uh, was it Kevin Kenworthy there? Yep, that's uh, where I did my... PhD work with Kevin Kenworthy and studied turf grass breeding for the first time. I was corn and cotton breeding before that, but you're right. When I showed up to Tifton, I was overwhelmed and really thought a lot about all the work that Dr. Hanna and Dr. Burton did before me. But fortunately, Dr. Hanna was around then to help mentor me, and he's still around now, and we talk weekly about turf breeding and hundred other things. Wow, so. that's quite amazing. But I think I skipped an important part. You did your undergrad and master's at A&M. Did you bump into Milt Ingelke or were you not necessarily interested in turfgrass breeding back then? That's kind of funny. I never met Dr. Ingelke until I had moved to Florida. So I was there in College Station studying corn and cotton and other things. And he was up in Dallas uh, doing a great job there. But no, I never met him until uh, I had left Texas. That's very interesting. I guess I can only imagine you had expected to do something other than turf grass breeding when your career began as an academic with a PhD. Yeah, I was really just trying to diversify my experience so that I could maybe get a job when I graduated. Not that I didn't care, but I had worked in row crops and we had the family farm and I was married, I am married, and I thought, I just need a job. So maybe I can work in turf, maybe I can work in corn or soybeans or cotton. So yeah, I didn't know what I was going to be able to do. So no trepidation at all. You breeders will move in and out of crops relatively comfortably, or was it a learning curve for you to leave row crop agriculture and come into turf grass breeding? It was a big learning curve for me. I had spent years trying to kill grassy weeds in lots of places. And when I showed up at Florida, thank goodness Dr. Kenworthy uh, mentored me, uh, the staff there, Paul Reith, and other graduate students I worked with. But 
I didn't know if crabgrass was the plot or if St. Augustine was the plot. I really had a lot to learn, but they, they got me into shape pretty quick and learned a lot there. When you come right down to it as a breeder, other than the morphological and identification issues, does it feel like breeding is transposable like that? You can be a corn breeder and then sort of move into turf grass breeding because the processes and practices that you follow in breeding efforts are similar? So you can be in corn and cotton breeding and come into warm season grass breeding with uh, just a little bit of work and mentorship. I would be worried about going from warm season turf breeding out into crop breeding because of the the major differences in population genetics and our timelines and emphasis over the year are just so much different than the structure and nature of when I was in the cotton nursery or whatever. But I know cool season grass breeders, they have a lot of structure, especially getting to work with some of them over the past year and, and you know, seeing tall fescue development. It's very similar to something you might do out there in the, the corn nursery. So you said you came from a family farm. What were the primary commodities on the farm? Yeah, so grandpa had the farm and he was actually the first generation that couldn't afford to live on the farm and farm. After World War II, he got his almost PhD at the University of Illinois and was a soil reclamationist for Peabody Coal. But he worked during the week and he farmed on the weekends and it would have been, you know, corn and soybeans and then and wheat sometimes there in Illinois. But everyone from his generation left the farm as a, a full-time career. No one from a my mom or her brother stayed on. So, uh, yeah, we had to leave the farm to go work just so we could farm. And that's, you know, it's funny. I, you know, I'm involved in the agricultural science major here at Cornell and, you know, obviously have studied agriculture in the last 15 years of teaching the subjects more. And when you look at the demographics, it's really 65 to 70 percent of the farms in America survive on off-farm income. And interestingly, that's, that's actually made them more successful when they're closer to cities because they offer people opportunities to work off the farm, make a decent living, and continue to farm. I guess the question is naturally, does your work at the University of Georgia satisfy your farming genes, or do you have a little sidelight where you're playing around on a farm as well? You know, right now, it's all I can do to keep up with the job here. So I don't, <laughs> other than checking in with my cousins and things to see how it's going. Maybe one day, but between work and three young kids, uh, <laughs> there's no more hours in the day. Well, you know, as you arrive at Tifton, and certainly one of the things I've known and anybody in turf, as long as I've been around, knows is, you know, Glenn Burton was really the giant. I know Wayne Hanna was his partner for a, a really long time I remember when Glenn passed away and I was reading his sort of life history. Turf was like a very small part of what he did. He was so prolific in other areas. Is this an expectation of you uh, at Tifton to be beyond turf grass breeding? Do you work in other crops? I, I'm sure Wayne worked in other crops as well. Is that an expectation down there at the station? So when I was hired... I was the first to be full-time UGA. Dr. Burton and Dr. Hanna were longtime USDA scientists and primarily forage breeders, whether that was Bermuda grass for forage or millet and all the other crops they worked on. So University of Georgia tasked me with only working on turf. And I did that through making it to full professor. And only now 
have I branched back out into a little bit of grass breeding for hay or or maybe even forages. So has the USDA presence at the Tifton station waned or have they refilled any of those or any are any of those folks colleagues anymore? We have a joke around here. They actually hired three scientists to replace Wayne Hanna. And, <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> so Dr. Bill Anderson is a forage breeder at the USDA. Dr. Karen Harris-Schultz is a geneticist there at the USDA, and I'm here at UGA. And so we're all within a walk away from each other. And yeah, it's a pretty cool place to work with colleagues from both federal and the state level. So as I'm preparing to chat with you, you know, looking up the history of the Tifton Station, and I had the great joy to visit there many years ago when I was the visiting young scientist to the USGA Research Committee back in the day when they did that. One of the things I realized is that they've been releasing hybrid Bermuda grasses, what, since the 50s. So what is it like when you walk in and you've got all this genetic material sitting around Obviously, some have come and gone, right? Tiflon, I'm not sure we use Tiflon anymore or Tiffine. But then when you start to think about 419 and 328, I guess Tiff Green and Tiff Way, if you will, what's it like to walk into something that you're charged being only a turfgrass breeder and having all this history of genetic material to play around with? I'm assuming it was either daunting or, wow, I got a head start. So it's a little bit of both. And thank goodness that the pipeline was full because it takes, you know, over a decade at the minimum to breed and release a warm season turf grass, a vegetatively propagated one. And, you know, even 22 years for Tiff Tough, our last release. So exciting, but daunting to go visit your last question with Dr. Burton and Dr. Hannah having such a high emphasis on forage and millet. It's amazing to me that they came up with such impactful grasses like Tiff Way and Tiff Sport and Tiff Eagle and Tiff Green on a low percentage effort towards turf. So, yeah, I feel pressure when I'm thinking I'm only tasked with turf <laughs> and, and I look out at our materials and we have a wealth of germplasm and really neat genetics. But it is like looking for a needle in a haystack for that right genetic combination. And we're working hard at it, but obviously the people before me were hard workers also. So let's try to do a little backtracking here, Brian. For those folks that don't understand turfgrass breeding very well, obviously one of the primary differences is that cool season grasses are typically all seed propagated and almost all of the warm season grasses, not exclusively, are vegetatively propagated. Can you talk a little bit about what makes it harder to breed warm season grasses that take so long? Because, I mean, I look at Reed Funk's work at Rutgers and he was churning out new varieties of bluegrasses and rye grasses uh, on a pretty routine basis. And you're saying it takes quite a bit longer to develop something that can get into production. What's the nature of what makes it so difficult? Yeah, so I try to study other people who are great at the job. And you mentioned Reed Funk and Bill Meyer, Stacy Bonos, Philip Vines, and they're definitely accumulating good genes that are hopefully passed on at a high heritability or a high rate to that uh, seeded cultivar. But for us, almost every cross we make is bad, which is <laughs> kind of depressing in a way when you come into the office knowing you're going to be 99.9% a failure. So when you have a, a male and a female and you cross them, the chances are if you only make a couple thousand hybrids, all of them will be bad. You know, we try to make twelve to 15,000 new hybrids a year. And most of the time, 
they're mostly bad, but we have to go through the testing. And so we vegetatively propagate them and plant them in different trials across the state or across the region, knowing that we're largely wasting our time. But the advantage we do have, as opposed to say the cool season grass breeders or a corn breeder is once we find that magic grass, we can propagate it through stolons and sprigs and sod and carry that on for usually many, many years. As you as you mentioned, Tiff Way has been around since the 60s and it's still a dang good grass. And that's what the difference is. And they're almost two different animals, but they're both working towards that goal of improving turf grass. So listen, I still visit courses with 328 and 419. I mean, you see some banderas and you see some, you know, champion, uh, not champion, celebration, Bermuda grasses. You see some new ones coming out. In your mind, now studying this for a really long time, What's made 328 and 419 so successful? I mean, they're from a cool season grass perspective, they're like the pen crosses of warm season grasses. What, what sort of made them a staple for so long? Well, Tifway was just a superior hybrid by almost every measure, especially considering the 1950s and 60s as far as density, color, ability to harvest even shade tolerance compared to the common that was prior to that. So Dr. Burton did great to come up with that one. And cool story about 328, you know, its legacy is that it mutated and it has been the base parent to every successful putting green Bermuda grass since, whether it was Champion, Mini Verde, Tiff Eagle, and even our new one, Tiff 3D. So that's where its legacy lives on, which I think is a cool scientific thought or experiment. Or It is, but on the other hand, doesn't that mutating sometimes lead to negative stuff like what I see and hear about off-typing? And I'm wondering about that particular aspect of developing warm season grasses, this off-typing issue. I mean, obviously it's a mutation of some kind, but in almost in every case, it's considered a negative attribute, correct? So that's a huge problem to go along with. The only reason we have new grasses is those bad mutations. So you hit the nail on the head there. You can have aggressive off types or mutations. And some of the only ways to fight those in the long-term stability of a cultivar is through certification, inspection, and at the farm level, really keeping your sprig field clean, uh, reconstituting it with the help of inspectors or the breeder. So yeah, you have to have uh, some bad with that good. Okay. So let's talk about that big shift that occurred. In your mind, uh, you got to remember a couple of things, Brian. One is I'm a cool season grass guy. I've learned about (laughs) warm season grasses in my travels over the last 20 years and interacting with uh, golf course superintendents around the world that and sports field managers that manage warm season grasses. You have the original Tiff Dwarf, right, in 1965, and then I would imagine a chance mutation, or was it developed particularly for greens types? Because now we have what we call the ultra dwarfs. Can you draw some distinction for a cool season grass guy like myself between dwarfs and ultra dwarfs? Sure. So really cool story about Tiff Dwarf and a lot of history here is it was what they believe a natural mutation back in the 60s and studied by a young graduate student then named Earl Elsner, who later became Dr. Earl Elsner and headed up the Georgia Seed Development Commission for many years and is still a collaborator of mine today. So his master's project under Dr. Burton was to study Tiff Dwarf before it was Tiff Dwarf. And it, like you mentioned, had a smaller leaf and a tighter canopy than Tiff Green 
328. But as the next round of mutations came, whether they were natural or induced by radiation, as Dr. Hanna back in the 80s and 90s, he had a cobalt 60 source here in Tifton, and he was inducing mutations in addition to studying the natural mutations. And the leaves got smaller, the canopy got tighter, but with that really good putting surface also came problems of thatch accumulation and shallow rooting. And so uh, it becomes this balancing act between finding the smaller grasses that have that championship level play versus those that are a nightmare to take care of for golf course superintendents. Well, listen, Brian, we're just getting started. Let's take a break, give you a chance to catch your breath because we're going at a pretty good pace here, making it through, uh, you know, 70 years of turf grass breeding in 15 minutes down at the Tifton Station. I'm Frank Rossi. I'm with Dr. Brian Swartz at Tifton Station. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Tough represents a watershed change in how much water usage we can reduce on golf courses. As we do reduce water, more superintendents are relying on wetting agent tablets for precise water management, such as A-plus pellets from the plant food company, for more precise management of localized dry spots. Maybe you've considered an application through the irrigation system, and you can use hydration AC fertigation for wall-to-wall treatment. Either way, you can learn more about this exciting technology on improving water management from your local plant food rep or at plantfoodco.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here, and I'm with Dr. Brian Schwartz at the University of Georgia, and we've gone through some pretty quick history, Brian, and you touched on something that I want to get into before we get into some of the improvements and other things that you're doing. You know, this off-typing issue, I, I see this a lot where it gets problematic, it's on greens, it's on fairways. I see this both, obviously, in southeastern golf courses and Southeast Asian golf courses, and out in the West where they overseed, and it forces them to want to regress. It can have real economic impact. And, you know, warm season golf courses are used to that really pure stand. You know, it may not stripe up, but that purity of that stand, that uniformity of that stand is highly prized. That maintenance of, you know, that certification process, that inspection process, the licensing of sod growers, Can you talk a little bit about that process and how much you're involved in it? Because obviously it has Georgia's Tifton name all over it, and it happens uh, with some frequency, unfortunately. And I'm wondering what your involvement is in making sure these fields are clean and the products that get out there that have those names on them can maintain that purity of stand. Sure. So sometimes the best lessons are the hardest lessons. And I'm around Dr. Hannah and Dr. Elsner still, and they talk about the 1980s when there was no such high stringent certification programs and grasses like Tiff Way and Tiff Dwarf almost became purely contaminated instead of purely pure. And it was a major effort on those pioneers' part where they reconstituted new fields from single sprigs on grasses verified by the plant breeder, both Dr. Burton and Dr. Hanna, and carried out through propagation by Dr. Elsner, by Mr. Terry Hollifield at Georgia Crop Improvement to get that original cultivar planted on fumigated land and start from a single sprig to ramp back up to those thousands and thousands of acres in production because we almost lost those great cultivars back in that time period. And so it was that hard lesson that we just continued with 
for certain grasses, we have a five-year rule where the turf reader, so in this case me, I'll restart a sprig and not only look at the resulting grass plot that we put here in Tifton, phenotypically, you know, leaf texture and density and that sort of thing, but we can use molecular markers now. And so I start here in Tifton with that. I pass it on to our foundation seeds program here. That's Dr. Roger Borman now. And then he'll work with Georgia Crop. It's Terry Hollifield. And we keep in touch with the growers. We inspect the growers uh, that are part of our program about three times a year. And it is a constant effort because nature wants to degrade this process, I promise. Yeah, obviously that's critical. It was maybe a little bit easier because obviously a lot of sod growers were simply growing 419, 328. And maybe as the dwarfs and ultra dwarfs came on, they've started to grow them. But when you look at the development of varieties at the station, it looked like there was a little bit of a lull between Tiff Dwarf and TIFF Sport and TIFF Eagle into the 90s. In your mind, when you look at TIFF Sport and TIFF Eagle, TIFF Eagle I still hear pretty regularly used, TIFF Sport not as much. What were some of the improvements that TIFF Eagle especially brought to the table that 419 and 328 didn't have? Sure. So the history of that lull is actually interesting. And, you know, I get to see the record books and the field plans. And when Dr. Hanna arrived there in the early 70s, uh, he was a forage person and a cytogeneticist, and Dr. Burton was still the plant breeder. And so as that relationship grew and their collaborations carried on, Dr. Hannah didn't even work on turf at first, or at least in kind of the forefront. And it was only in 1984 that Dr. Burton was probably in his 70s or 80s by that time that Dr. Hannah took over the turf program, had been working for many years behind the scenes to irradiate a lot of grasses, and he started selecting those ultra dwarfs. And Tiff Eagle was just one of the many that he had on putting greens, both here in Tifton and out at the golf course. And uh, sure enough, all that hard work has paid off. It's still the number one warm season Bermuda putting green surface, even today in 2023. You know, it's interesting thinking about the ultra dwarfs and the advantage, you know, of the kind of putting quality you can get with them now. I remember having a chat with Bruce Martin many years ago as the Ultra Dwarf started to become more popular in the late 90s. And he said it literally rejuvenated his career in pathology because a lot of them had significant disease issues. Do we feel still that the Ultra Dwarfs are plagued with some of these disease issues in certain climates or have they really stabilized and are maybe not requiring as many fungicide inputs? Because obviously fungicide use on Bermuda grass has been minimal over the years. The ultra dwarfs were maybe the first ones that might have even needed it. Has that remedied itself over time? Have they become more resistant or do you think they still sort of struggle a little bit with certain diseases? It's interesting you bring this up. My background is not pathology, but recently Philip Vines joined us here in Tifton and he worked in pathology before breeding and he's been bringing me up to speed. And just as you mentioned, the ultra dwarfs and cultivar specific, but they can get all sorts of diseases. And I've noticed fungicide use on some golf courses that seems higher than even your bent grasses in the transition zone, which is crazy to me. Almost to a alley, it's like they have a drug problem spraying <laughs> fungicides all the time. But the ultra dwarfs can be susceptible, and that is a golf course superintendent's livelihood. And if you lose your greens, I know they're in danger of losing their jobs. So it's our effort here in Tifton to select against that. 
that was one of the qualities of our new release TIFF 3D is that we backed off on all our fungicides here on the, the station and selected it amongst others that were, would get disease and fade away over the years under that disease pressure that we have naturally here in Tifton. Okay, so Brian, we're making our way through these TIFF varieties and TIFF Grand came along and it looked like it was a, a really good selection. And I know other ones have come out since. Are there some advantages to TIFF Grand for those considering different Bermuda grasses that you like TIFF Grand for? Things you think it's better at than maybe other things on the market? So TIFF Grand's an interesting story. It's a pretty dang good grass that probably came at the wrong time. If you think about 2008, the economy was slowing, a golf was slowing, and Tiff Grand being almost a dwarf and such dark green grass. And, you know, it has more shade tolerance than many Bermudas, but as turf grass was slowing and sometimes marketing gets a little hand, I mean, Tiff Grand is more shade tolerant than many Bermudas, but it's not shade tolerant like Zoysia or St. Augustine or the cool season grasses. So some people put it in way too heavy shade and you know, it failed and they got a bad taste in their mouth. It does have a pretty heavy seed head flush in the spring, early summer, and that turns some people off. But it is still a really strong grass on the sod farm as far as sod quality. I've seen it on green surrounds. You know, often it's the barrier between whatever's in the fairway or the approach and tiff eagle. So it has a purpose. It is a good grass, but to your point earlier, it's reduced acres and it's not out there as much as maybe we had hoped. So now that brings us to Tiff Tough. And back when I was working with Gil and Jim on the Ahoopy project down outside of Savannah, out in the hoopy drift of sand that really, if anybody's never seen it, it's one of the more fascinating landforms uh, I've seen and one you wouldn't expect in, in the, you know, the southern part of Georgia anyway. And I remember having a conversation with you about choosing whether we should go with Zoysia or Bermuda at the time. And you said, you know, I really like this Tiff Tough. It maybe had just been out just a little bit. It wasn't being widely used. So we were going back and forth and I was like, well, where did this thing come from? And, and I remember you telling me, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, because I may have misremembered it. I said, you know, Brian, was this thing in trials? He goes, Frank, it was in trials for a really long time as a standard variety in almost all the trials for quite a while. And it, it really uh, was sort of middle of the road until you turn the water down or turn the water off. And then it started to come to the top. And that's where it seemed to get everybody's attention. And still to this day, I think is really one of the more exciting Bermudas that we've seen in a really long time because of its color that it holds late in the season and its superior drought tolerance. Did I remember that right? Or am I just telling myself a story, Brian? No, you, you got it absolutely right. So Tiff Tough is a, an older grass, one of 27,000 hybrids at the time during that crossing effort. And pretty enough, you know, as you mentioned, probably not quite as high turf quality as Tiff Way during the best of times with plenty of water, plenty of mowing, plenty of everything else. But as we started grant funding and putting in grants to the SCRI programs for selecting and developing turf grasses for lower water use, it absolutely became the standard Bermuda grass that needs less water. And when you and I talked about a hoopy, it was, it was at the beginning. I had seen it for five or six years here in Tifton and was confident in it, but no one else had really seen it. But since that time, oh, there's 70 plus some growers now 
in the U.S. alone, thousands and thousands of acres. And it is not a perfect grass, but it's a pretty good one that kind of lives up to its name. You can mistreat it pretty well and it won't die. It'll come back. So obviously the thing that comes to mind when you talk about drought tolerance, uh, not that the Southeast necessarily has to worry about this, but you do have, you know, episodic periods as the climate is changing. You're, you're having more drought episodes, uh, longer periods of that. But this is something certainly that the West and the Southwest has been, I would assume, very interested in. It doesn't seem like Bermuda grasses are well suited to the desert because it can get cold. But more importantly, I've always thought Bermudas really like humidity. Can you talk a little bit about growing it for sod out in the desert, out in the West? Does that present some challenges even to a drought tolerant Bermuda grass where they have very low humidity? Does it change the way it performs or limit the way it performs in any particular way? I think it does. My experience is fairly limited, but growing many grasses out there is very challenging. When we've had our zoysia grass tits plots, not many of them make it toward the end of a three-year cycle. The Bermuda grasses struggle for all the reasons you just said, or or many others that I don't even understand because I've never worked out there. But uh, a neat thing about Bermuda grass is that heavy rhizome that it can develop to get it through to another time, whether that's an irrigation event that someone puts on it or a rain-fed activity. But growing grass out west is a different animal than the southeast, where we may not even have to water Tiff Tough in Atlanta with those periodic rains, like you mentioned. And out there, you just have to get on a schedule. So Yeah, so I'm sort of wondering about the humidity. Obviously, the desert climate and the fact that it can survive in those strong rhizomes does Bermuda grass thrive more with higher humidity? And do the growers out there maybe water excessively to create some of that humidity for the grass? You know, Frank, I haven't thought about it like I should have, but we're we're starting to work with our saw growers more and then uh, UC Riverside. Mm-hmm. So that's the question I'm going to ask some of my colleagues as soon as I can. Because that's uh, definitely information I should be using in my breeding program. Okay, well, I'm happy to help. And while I'm helping, Brian, let's take a break here. One more break. We'll hear from our sponsors. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. I'm with Dr. Brian Schwartz at the University of Georgia. We'll be right back. It's our 10th season of Frankly Speaking. And it's time to thank the folks at Dryject who have been with us from the very beginning. I've been an advocate of Dryject services because I've seen the results, how it improves performance, and maximizes productivity by aerating, top dressing, and amending in a single pass. Don't take my word for it. Check them out at dryject.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here, Dr. Brian Schwartz at the University of Georgia. And we have done a timeline through Bermuda grasses and have ended in Tiftuff. And I want to take one more minute here, Brian, about Tiftuff before I get into some of your zoysia grass research and talk a little bit about the water savings, right? Because this has gotten a lot of press. You've started to accumulate some awards on this. It obviously was there before you got there, and but it's obviously one you've worked to improve since you've been there. What kind of water savings are we really talking about? And is it your experience in going out there and looking at it that golf course superintendents are giving it a chance to perform better with drier conditions? Because, you know, 
they've got to grow it. And they're used to growing Bermuda grass a particular way. And sometimes when you tell people to dial back something, there's a little bit of risk aversion, right? I don't want to dial back nitrogen. I don't want to dial back my fungicides. I don't want to dial back my water. How much water reduction can we expect? And has it been your experience that we're really capitalizing on that technology? So the research said 38% before release. I'm not sure that you can put a number like that across the whole country for the hundred reasons that you and I work with almost every day, uh, environments, soils, everything. So in Atlanta, for example, we probably are saving more than that in water. But if you go to Florida where it's the heavy sands, the longer growing season, I haven't seen any new research, but it's my guess that it's probably not 38%. But if you compare to, say, older varieties like Tiff Way, uh, Tiff Tough will use less in that environment. So our golf course superintendent saving water is a great question. I have run across a dozen situations. You've probably run across 200. It's dependent on them. Many superintendents will push an envelope, and I know several that are very happy with the savings that they see. And then I have the opposite side of the coin where maybe their fairways are zoysia and the roughs are tiff tough, and they're not willing to take the risk for their fairway grass or for whatever reason. So I, I have seen examples across the entire board. Mm. Well, it seems like one of the things I've noticed is, particularly with Rhett at a hoopy, and any place where there's maybe a player's club where it's sort of a golf course where really good golfers will play, they'll really embrace the dry conditions uh, because obviously they're more playable. The firm and fast conditions, Tiff Tough is well adapted to. And I just got a chance to visit Ladera Golf Club uh, out in Thermal, California, in the Palm Desert out there. And boy, it's incredibly impressive. Still very young, but incredibly impressive as a playing surface. And I think, again, when you've got really good golfers, you can maximize playing conditions by keeping it dry. And that lends to a perfect transition to the zoysia grass work that you've been working on. I don't know if it's been exclusively with some of the material from Blade Runner, but I think we're talking about not zoysia japonica, but zoysia matrella that seems to be making some revolutionary advances in being used on golf courses. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between zoysia japonica and zoysia matrella and what took us so long to get these matrellas to the market? Sure. So have a great opportunity to work with Blade Runner Farms and access to all the germplasm that David Dogay uses in his breeding program. And a japonica's wide leaf, heavy rhizome, generally lower turf quality than the matrella, which is a finer leaf, not necessarily darker green, but much higher density. And for golf, just a really awesome surface to hit a golf ball off of, at least for me. And why have we used some and not used others. That's a pretty neat question. You know, Xeon and Zorro, so Zorro from Texas A&M came out over 20 years ago. And I think those varieties are still at the top of what people in Georgia are looking at when they're choosing a zoysia grass to renovate to even now. What I have observed with those varieties and hopefully some of our efforts in Tifton are to improve the water use of zoysia matrella and also a disease resistance or tolerance because of our conditions. So both Xeon and Zorro and others, for example, were, were bred in Texas where their environment's totally different than the Southeast. So that's where we've poured in a lot of our effort in the last 14 years since I've been here. And I'll tell you what, Zoysia was my favorite species by far coming out of grad school, studying under Kevin Kenworthy. I still love it. It can be really frustrating though. Uh, 
the inconsistency in Azoja from year to year as compared to some of our Bermudas is fascinating and frustrating and actually exciting in other ways because it gives us something to really work for. So when you say inconsistencies, you mean a particular type, Zorro or Xeon, for example, uh, or even the L1, F1 type. Are you saying they don't perform consistently year to year, or is it that you have some successes breeding some years and not other years? Yeah, so those cultivars have stood the test of time, Zorro and Xeon, and they would be the consistency that I'm looking for when I go to my breeding plots. So right now we have 14,000 new zoysia grass hybrids out in the plots. And in the spring of 2021, I would have swore we were about to change the world with some of these hybrids. And then you'd look at them another year, you plant them in another place, and well, maybe we're not. Some of these are falling apart. And then in 2023, we get out there and a different set of those same 14,000 are just the best grasses we have seen to date in our lives. Not really, but you know where I'm going. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure 2024, I'll see changes again. So I give credit to Dr. Engelke, to David Dogay for developing that Zorro and Xeon that's 20 some years old and still performing really consistency because that we have to have consistency, but we also have to have improvements over those varieties or we won't have an impact. So what is the nature of that consistency? Is it genetic stability or is it they have a wider range of stability that makes it more resilient? Uh, what is the nature of the inconsistencies that you're seeing in some of your new material? So I, I don't believe they're mutating by any sorts. They're slower growing, but as they accumulate that rhizome layer and stolons, they develop thatch. They sometimes go into a decline with diseases or lack of rooting or coming out of the spring slow. And well, it's probably the same effort that we have in the Bermuda program. We're just pretty young in it. If you think about Dr. Burton starting to breed Bermuda grass in 1935, and I've only started this in 2010-ish. I, we may just be at the infancy and uh, knocking on that door, I hope. I know that uh, from working with David a little bit, that the majority of the material he started with, he purchased from Jack Murray, the uh, USDA scientist uh, in Washington, D.C. I think he was based in Beltsville for a long time. And I think David took that collection. And I've been down to Blade Runner in Poteet, Texas, the strawberry capital of Texas, I'm sure David <laughs> would add, and some good barbecue around there as well. And you have access to all that material. If you are in your infancy, are you starting to notice certain things? Because, you know, it looks like we've got some greens types that look pretty good uh, out of the gate. I, I saw some planted at a golf course. Uh, I was at the Grand Vista Resort in Orlando, Florida. Uh, they've put their nine greens into a, a putting green type zoysia. I guess some of the new varieties that came out of Jack Murray's work if we're still in our infancy, are there ones that have emerged separate from Xeon and Zorro that you like now? Absolutely. So you mentioned David and, and almost like Wayne Hanna, having someone who's been around the block and can point out certain things as you're making selections or growth habits, it's been really good. And as far as putting greens, yeah, we have a few that we developed here in Tifton using his germplasm. And I'm super excited about them as they hit the ground running with laser and with prism and others. That's hopefully going to pave the way for some things maybe we develop here in Tifton to not have to beat the barrier of jumping into a Bermuda grass world, at least in the southeast where, you know, 
people really eye you funny if you want to try something like a zoysia grass for greens when they're used to the old tried and true. As far as a matrella type, I'll tell you what, that's the, a big hurdle. And I don't know that we have one that I would bet my life on. I have several that will just totally dominate Xeon and Zorro in some years and then go lackluster in others. So still an effort there. And as far as a, a medium to medium course, very excited about a couple. I, I, some stick to my tongue. 13685, for example, is one. We've just been watching and almost looks like tall fescue during some points of the year. It's dark green, has that real upright growth habit. So, yeah, we're making strides and uh, just kind of leaning on some of those old guys who have lots of knowledge and experience to guide us during these times. Well, it's interesting because I had the chance to spend some time with Ken Magnum and John Sorokin down at this uh, educational event in Florida. And they were talking about laser uh, and prism and I, you know, I know John's doing some work in the transition zone in particular, where they had bent grass greens, and typically they would go to Bermuda grass greens, but John's having some success in getting them into zoysia greens. I, I know Tyler Carr did some work looking at this in getting them planted and getting them out there. And I got to say, I was talking to the golf course superintendent in Florida in uh, February. It's the peak golf season. They looked really good and he hadn't mowed them for seven days and he had been just rolling them every day and they were rolling 13 feet, 12 feet on the stint meter. Um, these grasses really, for people that don't know about them, have the potential to be revolutionary. I mean, if you think about not mowing your greens in your peak golf season for long periods of time and having them hold up the traffic and still perform really well, Brian, this has got to be very exciting. And I guess our big hurdle is how do we get them over that hump to make a change like this when it seems maybe for some people really quick and others too risky? What do you think? I know this is maybe outside your sphere, right? Because you develop the grasses and it's somebody else's thing to get them to be adopted. But I'm wondering your thoughts on, on these dramatic changes that we could see with zoysia grasses on putting greens. So you mentioned almost everything that I think about when I'm dreaming of <laughs> what should I do to improve a golf course superintendent's life. Mow less, fertilize less, be able to handle shade more. And as long as we have that resiliency for wear or for cutting a cup and putting it back and not having the rings everywhere, I think we will change their lives. What will it take? It will take someone who's willing to just take that risk Maybe someone who has the backing of their club that if it doesn't go right, they're not going to just lose their job. It's right there at the cusp, ready to grab. It's almost like low-hanging fruit in some ways. And then in other days, I feel like it's a mountain that we're at the bottom of, and then we're, we're just starting our climb. So, <laughs> Well, one of the things you've got to climb over is the disease issues, right? I mean, certainly this is something we talked about when we were talking about the Ahupi project years ago. And obviously that same, you know, slow growth and wear tolerance also makes it susceptible that if you have lost to large patch or maybe some other disease problem, it can take a while to recover. I'm wondering, too, if this isn't going to force superintendents to spray, you know, out of need for security, you know, disease risk that might come about. In the plots that you've seen out there, can you go with low risk with some of these greens types and not treat them very often? Or do you feel like there are some critical sprays you've got to make just to protect yourself? 
you know, if I'm being honest with you, now that I've seen the record books at some golf courses, it's not like we're spraying a, a little bit on Bermuda. We're spraying a lot. So I, I'm hopeful with our breeding and genetics where we're able to select out some of those weaker disease intolerant zoysia grasses for putting greens that we can make a, a vast improvement and that we can change a culture. I can tell you, though, during the widespread collaboration I have with the USGA and the Georgia Golf Course Superintendent Association and the, the folks that let me do testing on their golf courses, if we treat a zoysia like Bermuda, it's never going to work. And that's been kind of the key to some of the other work we're doing where I can say, well, y'all put out these experimentals and don't worry, just treat them like Tiff Eagle, you know, and, and that's easy, but you can't do that. You really should back off on many things, fertilizer, mowing, other uh, management inputs that it's going to be different for the superintendent and they're going to have to jump in all the way, not just halfway. And this sounds a lot like what we've confronted here in the North as ice damage has come through and anthracnose problems have come through with annual bluegrass, a lot of people have switched to bentgrass and have maintained their annual bluegrass management strategy. And that's led to, of course, as you might imagine, a big influx of annual bluegrass and, and failure of these surfaces. Now, listen, Brian, I want to get you out of here on this. You mentioned TIF 3D. I've never even heard of it. Can you talk a little bit about the advances that TIFF 3D is making as an ultra dwarf? Sure. So it's our latest release. It's not available for sale in widespread numbers yet. It, it should come online next year. It's available by, by one li licensee this year, which is Pro Greens out of a farm near me. But we selected it from TIFF Green, actually, for being able to maintain those superior putting green characteristics such as speed or consistency uniformity with a little lower input. It was widely tested at about 12 or 14 golf courses, probably more than we've ever done here in Tifton compared to Tiff Eagle most of the time. And uh, darker green, a consistent grass, probably less thatch accumulation, can handle high input. Can You can back off and go more like Tiff Dwarf, and it does fine also. So hopefully something big in the future. But, you know, we're up against the number one Bermuda for putting greens in the world, which is Tiff Eagle from my shop here in town. So it's not going to be easy, but it's something we're excited about. Well, Brian, I really appreciate you taking the time to wander through the timeline and also the challenges and frustrations that you face working in this area. I don't think golf course superintendents necessarily appreciate the toil and the, the meticulousness that's required to develop the kinds of grasses, not only that we want today, but I'm sure you're thinking about, as you mentioned, what we're going to need in the future. So I'll give you a big thanks for everybody that doesn't get a chance to do it, in addition to taking the time for all your hard work in developing these grasses and, and stewarding all the ones that were developed before you, Brian. Thanks very much for taking the time and congrats on some great work so far. And thank you so much. And it would be bad of me not to mention why it really happens. We have such a strong team here in Tifton and I just would love for anyone if they're ever in South Georgia to stop by, meet all of us, see what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. And a pretty good football team, too, huh? Yeah, last, last couple of years, for sure. I think I saw you on TV. Uh, I think they had the UGA commercial during one of the events. I'm like, hey, I know that guy looking over the uh, grass. I'm sure you got some texts after that happened. You know, I had no idea that video clip they took was going to go in that spot. It, it surprised me. It made me laugh. A lot of my friends gave me grief for that whole year. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Brian. Really appreciate you taking the time. Take care now. You too. Big 
thanks to Brian Schwartz. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, the plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability, and Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.